Welcome to Scaling Up, the Industrial Water Treaters podcast. Hello, Scaling Up Nation. Trace Blackmore here, your host for Scaling Up H2O, the podcast where we're scaling up on knowledge so we don't scale up our systems. I am going to let you know in on a secret. In 1997, I met a gentleman that spoke to me at the AWT Technical Training Conference, and that gentleman was British, and he seemed to know a whole bunch about water treatment, and he did not mind letting me know anything that I wanted him to let me know about. He was a fantastic guy. I didn't know him at all back then, so for the past over 20 years, I have been able to call this gentleman a friend, and I was very fortunate today. He showed up at our offices here at Blackmore Enterprises just to say hi, and the person I am talking about is Colin Frayne, CWT. If you have been at any AWT function, you have met Colin Frayne. He is synonymous with AWT. He is one of our best speakers. He has so much experience. He speaks about 40 different languages. He is just a heck of a guy. And he has been in water treatment for quite some time. And as you know from listening to this show, you cannot be in water treatment without making some mistakes. So Colin was so gracious to come on the show to share some of his experiences, what he does on a day-to-day basis, how he got into the industry, and all things water treatment. So I know you are going to enjoy my interview with Colin Frayne, CWT. My lab partner today is Colin Frayne, CWT. Colin, thank you so much for coming on Scaling Up H2O. Been trying to get you on the show, it seems like the longest time now. You were gracious enough to stop by the office and here you are. It's a pleasure to be here, even if I haven't actually had a cup of coffee from you yet. Well, I've offered you a cup of coffee, you just did <laughs> it's not fine. No, it's good to be here. Uh, office is very impressive and I like it, yeah, it's good. Well, the Scaling Up Nation, a lot of them know Colin Frayne. I'm sure there's a few out there that don't know who Colin is. So tell us a little bit about Colin Frayne. Okay, well, I shall never see 70 again. I suppose there's the start. And I've been in the business now 55, 56 years, something like that, and continue to enjoy it every day. And what I really enjoy are the challenges that come up every day, the problems that need solving, the people that could do with some help and assistance, the, uh, the sheer range of, uh, of problems and activities where water is involved one way or another. But also, even if you think about oil and gas business and you think, well, it's primarily the, uh, the oil that we're interested in, well, even that has massive water problems and so is, uh, is very interesting. And um, I've got to the stage, I guess, where even though I'm a paid consultant and my hourly rate is pretty high, the interest in the job outweighs the money that I get. And so I'm always keen to take on jobs, even if they don't necessarily pay a lot, if it's a really interesting project or a problem to solve, wherever it is. And it might be 15 or 18,000 feet below ground in a South African gold mine, or it might be 10,000 feet in the air in a Peruvian copper mine. There's some of the things I've done, and, and, and some of the stuff 
It takes hours and hours and days and days. It might even take 24 hours to go from home to wherever the location is. And once you got there, there is no five-star hotels, you know? But, but simply solving problems is really good, really interesting. I can't remember who said it, but if you do what you love, you never work a day in your life. Well, in which case I've never worked. You know, I talk to water treaters and some of them don't feel like they enjoy their job. Find something else, right? Because you're proof that you can love water treatment and if you don't, find something else. If find you do, something else. Yeah, there's, there, is, there is no shortage of problems to be solved. You've got to get out there and, uh, and solve them. Um, and part of the solution is really, really understanding this business that we're in. If you take it from the view of, I've got four service calls to do today, and when it's done, then I'm finished. Until tomorrow, you're never gonna be able to learn anything. And there are plenty of people I know that've been in the business a dozen years and have got a dozen years experience, except they don't. They have one year's experience repeated a dozen times. You've got to expose yourself to fresh challenges. And part of that means that you've got to continue learning. You've got to read AWT books. You've got to read literature. You've got to expand your mind. My current bedtime reading is advanced biochemistry. And it may sound dead, but it's dead interesting. It's really, really interesting, you know? And it's not that far away from what we currently do in, in water treatment. And I suspect that, that as the, uh, the science continues to grow and expand and we get involved in new things, actually having a qualification in biochemistry can be a big help to water treaters. So lots of things to do, lots of interest. Absolutely. Colin, I'm curious, how did you get involved in- All right, so you know that I'm English originally. I've gathered that. Right. I, tell, I try to tell people it's a Georgia accent, but they don't really believe me. So, so I'm English. I was born just after the Second World War. Uh, and, and if you knew, especially London or Manchester in those days, they were big bomb sites. Everything was a mess. There was no money. We had a lease lend arrangement with the USA. We owed billions of dollars that we had to pay back. So there was nothing. Our food was rationed. You know, I think my mother could get four eggs a month, that sort of stuff. And meat was very difficult to come by, so it was tough. Uh, so when I grew up, it was, it was tough. It wasn't that, that we never went without food because we didn't. Um, we always lived in, in a decent property. They were obviously rented. In fact, we actually lived in uh, an American manufactured prefab for some years. I'm not sure that they would go down well these days because I'm pretty sure that most of the exterior walls were made of asbestos. <laughs> uh, but, but we grew up that. But when I got to the age of 16 and I was in, in what was called a grammar school, so a high school at the age of 16, my father said, uh, son, there's no money in the house. You need to leave school and get yourself a job. And I've decided that you're going to be a chemical engineer. You have a job interview at Ford Motor Company tomorrow morning, 8 o'clock. Do not come home if you lose it. There you go. And uh, so I, you know, quite frankly, I didn't at that age, didn't even know how to open a bank account. Um, so I took a, a double-decker red bus to, uh, to Dagnum, which is part of London, uh, on the River Thames, and went for, uh, for an interview. And I found out that they were offering three jobs as apprentice chemists or chemical engineers. I got offered one of those in 20 minutes. Um, I'm not sure it was because I knew anything. It was just maybe the guy wanted his own cup of coffee and was clean, you know, glad to get rid of me. But I, I, I got a, a job in, in 20 minutes and then I was told to report back uh, on Monday morning at eight o'clock 
to a power utility plant. And it was uh, Ford Motor Company, Dagnum's uh, power utility plant. And at that time, they, the number of people varied, but it was generally between 50 and 60,000 employees on one location. Now, the location was about 10 miles long and five miles wide on the river. And because you had all these engine plants and foundries and, and what's called MSBS, uh, metal stamping body division and paint trim and assembly buildings, uh, they had to have their own power station. And so I reported there, uh, and I'd obviously never been inside a power station before, and uh, I went up to, uh, to the laboratory, and the chief chemist was doing the telegraph crossword, looked up at me and said, so you're the young lad that's come for, uh, for a job? I said, yes. He said, okay, so you're going to be doing lots and lots of different kinds of analysis, and uh, so look out of one window, what do you see? So I said, well, there's a whole bunch of uh, locomotives, steam locomotives. He said, yes, he said, they're the stockyard locomotives. He said, you're looking after the water treatment on every one of those. Oh, so he said, so look out of another window, what can you see? I said, I can see a big pile of coal. He said, yes, he said, we use pulverized coal fuel in our high pressure boilers, and you're gonna be looking after the quality and quantity of the pulverized fuel. So you'll be doing sieve analyses and things like that. He said, so you're gonna be like black with coal dust every single week when you do that. Who wouldn't love that? Yeah, who wouldn't love that? So, um, so then I had some other things to look at, which included a lime soda softener and then a uh, Kennicott iron exchange plant. And I, obviously I knew nothing about that. And when I started the following morning in the laboratory, then I was doing oxygen tests we had no oxygen meters had not been invented in those days. And so the sampler used to go in with stainless steel pots and take maybe 20, 25 samples. And then I had to do oxygen tests. So I had to be proficient in doing a wet laboratory analysis. It was a modified Winkler test. Um, and I used to be able to do, within a short time, I used to be able to do maybe 25 uh, water samples for uh, color change for, for oxygen analysis in under about three minutes. Because you had to be fast, otherwise the oxygen would, would disappear. Uh, and then I used to do uh, bomb calorific uh, work on, on, uh, on, on the quality of the coal, the BTUs of the coal, steaming coal. Uh, and then I used to do deposit analyses um, for maybe 20 different metals and everything was gravimetric because nobody had invented ICP or anything like that in those days. Even uh, doing things like conductivity. The, uh, the conductivity meter weighed 30 pounds and it was made of wood and you actually had to wind up uh, the, the machine first of all to get an electrical charge before you did your conductivity. So things have changed in, <laughs> in 50 odd years. But that was, that was how I started. So I worked for those guys uh, four and a half days a week at Ford Motor Company. And then uh, one full day and two evenings, I went to university. In those days, it, it was called a polytechnic, but it became uh, North London University. And uh, so I worked like six days a week. And I would work the hours that the uh, shift workers would be, which would be anywhere between eight and 12 hours a day. And so in winter, in a foundry, for example, you never saw daylight until the weekends. And I never got paid much money, I like $5 a week. But there was no college debt or anything like that. I, uh, when I was 22, I got my first uh, degree, bachelor's equivalent, bachelor of science equivalent. And um, by then I had worked in the power plant, the sintering plant on ships, 
metal stamping, body division, paint trim, assembly, wheel plant, foundry, forge, pig iron plant, steel plant, byproducts plant, um, what else did I done? A whole bunch of other stuff in several countries as well. And then from there I got a promotion, I was doing a master's degree, and then I got a promotion and I went to the European um, Research and Development Center of Ford Motor Company and I became their in-house chemistry and microbiology consultant. And so I used to have to go and fix problems all around Ford Motor Company. I had never had my own money to spend. I would spend the plant manager's budget, but he would phone and say, we have big problems with uh, cooling towers or boilers or something going wrong. Uh, closed loops that were scaled up because they were using silicate rock as a uh, closed loop chemistry. So I used to spend other people's uh, money to be able to do that. And that meant that I got to see Nalco and Dearborn and Betts and Drew and those guys. And I had authorities to spend money with those people, but it wasn't my money. And I remember the day that Betts came into uh, the UK and uh, they took like the top 100 potential customers, I guess. And I was one of them because I represented Ford's. And we went to a five-star hotel in Stratford-on-Avon and I got a Betts handbook and I thought the world can't get much better than this in water treatment. And that was a long time ago. So after Ford, where did you go then? Oh, after Ford, I, after about nine and a half years, I realized that I would not get any significant promotion at Ford because I was a chemist and a chemical engineer, but I was not an auto engineer. And you needed to be an automobile engineer to be able to, uh, to move on. So I decided I would leave and I got a job as chief chemist of an environmental services uh, business. And I spent half of my time looking at problems like PCB contamination of quarries and cows dying. That was in, in Wales. And then I'd go over to Europe and I would look at um, industrial canals that would change color every couple of kilometers. And then you're having to do BODs and CODs and analysis and then work with laboratories to show them how to do the sampling and the testing and stuff like that. And, uh, and that went on for, for a couple of years. And then one day I got a, a call in fact, a visit from, uh, from a regional manager of Ciba Geigy, which later metamorphosized into BWA, but in those days was not only an innovator in chemistries, but also a service company. And the guy said, Colin, how would you like to have a new car every single year? I said, well, that sounds fantastic. What do I have to do? He said, sell, go sell. So I became a salesman, a water treatment uh, technician and technologist and sold. And uh, somehow or another, within the first 12 months, I became the top salesman. Uh, it was mainly because I took on a big steel plant that was outside my territory, but obviously I knew how to run steel plants, and so that, that helped with significant volumes. And the result of that was that I got a promotion, and then I became country manager. And so I said, okay, well, this sounds very good. There's more money and it's a better job, country manager. Which country? And, and it was Iran. So I went to live in Iran. And you know I speak pretty good Persian, Farsi. And, uh, and then when the whole world blew up with the revolution and, uh, and, uh, and my family was not safe anymore, I couldn't travel unless I traveled with them. And then there was shooting and hangings in the street and stuff like that. It was time to leave. And so we left at the time that Khomeini came in, but I've been back to Iran since, I, I love the country. 
and then came back for a while and I'd, then I was from there I was working in Scotland and Ireland and then northern France and then I got asked to go to South Africa and I lived, was there for years. Then I was in Abu Dhabi and, and Singapore and several other places. Um, and so quite frankly it was from, from the day that I went to Iran, mid-70s, was the day I then became an international water treater and that's what I've been doing for the last goodness knows how many years since then and still do it today and still love the business as much as I did from the beginning. Again, more evidence. If you love what you do, you don't work a day in your life. Yeah. Now, I'm not sure I love sitting on a plane for 17 hours, but sometimes that's what you have to do to, uh, to, to do the job. You know, I was in, in uh, southern Africa twice last year and that's 17 hours each way. You go to China, you go to, you know, you fly to Chicago or you fly to Hong Kong and then you change. And the same thing from, from leaving your house to getting to the hotel, it's 24 hours. And, and I don't think any of that stuff has got any better at all. But at the other end, you have people who are interested in you because you hold a key to be able to solve a problem. And that's why I think I'd come back to something that we discussed earlier, and that is you have to keep learning in this business. There is so much to learn and none of us are ever going to be true masters. Now, you know, I'm, I'm a fellow of the Royal Institution of Chemistry and I got my name in the uh, Queen's Diary in the Times of London to say that I'd been approved as a, uh, as a fellow. So I'm a pretty good chemist. And I could probably tell you more than you ever wanted to know about maybe, I don't know, 250,000 chemicals. But I'm 72 and there's 100 million chemicals. So the chance that I'm ever gonna know anything really about that is, is limited. So I say again, part of, this, part of this talk I think is for me to reinforce that you've gotta enjoy this business, but to enjoy it, you've got to keep learning. And the more you learn and knowing the, the nature of our business where everybody eventually gets to know everybody else, if they know and respect you for who you are and what you can do and what you bring to the table, whether it's in strategic analysis or whether it's in technical problem solving, you're gonna get a better job, you're gonna enjoy yourself. I don't know about the money, but, but it's the enjoyment in the job is the key thing. I think that's great advice. I know there are a lot of people listening, some are very seasoned water treaters, some just started. What are some resources that you can recommend for the water treater out there that does wanna learn more? Well. I I think you've got to do stuff on your own. I can recommend a whole bunch of books and quite frankly, the AWT um, has a wide range of books on offer. Um, and even if you think that one or two of them are not particularly within your direct sphere, what you've got to do is to say, what am I going to be doing in five years time? If it's the same darn job, you're not going to enjoy it. But, it. but if you've got some aspirations, you need to learn a wider spectrum of things and you can you can get some books from the AWT. But in addition to that, think of a subject and check it out because you'll find it on Wikipedia, you know? You wanna know about, you know, biochemistry. You wanna know about oil and gas. You wanna know about food and beverage. You wanna know some very specific subject. There's something for you in Wikipedia on the internet. Look it up, learn it. The more you learn, the more you absorb, the more valuable you're going to be. And for most people in this business, most of us working for a water treatment services company or a supplier or something, really our job is to be a cash generator. If the company doesn't grow, no one does well. So your job is to be a cash generator. 
And you can generally generate more cash if you know more, if you're more experienced, if you've got more knowledge, if you can speak about a couple of specific jobs, and if you can turn the experiences that you've got into how to problem solve some future problem down the line, you're gonna be really successful. I know you speak a lot on this when you did the sales training for AWT. Yes. And you would say that each salesperson had a minimum amount of revenue that they had to bring in, or they were costing the company money. Can you speak a little towards that? Yeah, as, as I've said, all of the water treatment companies and the suppliers all have a common objective. One is that the company continues to exist. The second is that it has to be profitable. And the only way it can be profitable is either to sell chemicals to somebody else at a decent markup on their quality, or you've got to provide some other form of equipment or service. But all of them ultimately results in cash generation. And that's why when we're, we're looking at a, a, a water treatment territory, and perhaps we're trying to sell into that, it's no point just going after the million dollar jobs because they might take three or four years to bring in. There's no point going after the thousand dollar jobs because you can bring lots in, but they don't bring much money. So you have to have a balance of smaller jobs, medium sized jobs and larger jobs for the long term and, and develop those. But you, you quickly get known whether you are really good at your job, whether you really know something, whether you're keen, whether you're interested. It's like going for a job interview. How long does a job interview last? 45 minutes perhaps, something like that. How long does it take for the interviewer to make a mind up whether you're potentially hireable? Less than three minutes. So if it takes three minutes to decide that you're the person that's required, the other 42 minutes is essentially used to justify that original conclusion. But equally, if you're no good, that will be solved. You can identify that very quickly as well. So you have to keep learning one way or another, and the more you learn, and the more you push yourself to learn, and the more you push yourself to, to go on to a new job, to be taken out where there is a real problem. Maybe even if you're just a junior and you go out with a senior person, you'll learn from every single experience, and ultimately all of that gets stored in your brain, and it will come out at the right time when you have to solve problems yourself. And customers aren't really always that interested in saving money. We all know they say that, but what they really want is an easy time. They don't want problems. They don't want the production to suddenly shut down. They don't want unexpected health and safety problems. They want an easy time. And if you can help them get an easy time because of what you know, how you work, what you bring to the table, you're gonna enjoy the job, your customer's gonna love you, and everybody's gonna make money, which is the objective in the first place. Let's shift gears just a little bit. We have both said the acronym AWT yes. at least half a dozen times. So how did you get involved with the Association of Water Technologies and why do you still stay involved? Okay, so I've spent more than half my life overseas, probably three quarters of my life living in different countries overseas. And the AWT does not exist anywhere else. There's a couple of uh, countries where there is some decent organization. So for example, in the UK, there is a, a uh, water management society, which is similar to AWT, although it has a slightly different format, but it does do lots and lots of regular teaching as, as a mechanism to enhance 
the membership. I've worked for lots of big companies, and in general, even when I worked for service companies, they were too big to either become an AWT member as, as a water treatment company, or they considered themselves too big. Um, and so I never really got involved, and I'd been in living in the USA for um, probably six years, I guess, and knew of the AWT, but the reality is I didn't really know very much until it was suggested to me in New York City that maybe I could help and do some, some lectures. And so I was put in touch with uh, my new boss, Bruce Ketrick. And, uh, and Bruce said, yep, in this gruff voice, yep, I'm sure you can be useful. You can help us and do some lecturing. And, and I think it was 1989, it might've been 1990, and it was in New Jersey. And from that day since, I've never stopped lecturing. And I've enjoyed myself every day since meeting all the different people in all the different parts of the country and now more and more international and the things that we do and the professionalism that we have, what we bring to the table, I now know is the envy of everybody I speak to in other parts of the world. We just wish there was an AWT in Africa or an AWT in South America or an AWT in Southeast Asia, but they don't exist. This has taken nearly 30 years to bring to the position that it's now in, but it, it, I'm not necessarily sure it's the voice of all the people, but it's, it must be one of the most preeminent water industry associations, if not associations of any description. And the way that it works, the things that it does, the brotherhood and sisterhood that it has is just marvelous, that everyone is prepared to spend time and money and, and, and assistance kind assistance in helping other people I think is great and it's been overall it's been a wonderful thing for the water industry and for me personally it's been great meeting all these different people including you that's right yeah it's been really really wonderful I want to say it was 97 when you and I met and it was at an AWT technical training and we were discussing before this recording the technical training we have today is far different than what it was back in 97. Yes. Uh, but if I recall, that was when you just came out with your boiler water books and your cooling water books. Yeah, a year or so after that, I think I began to come out with those. Yeah, the cooling water came first and then the, uh, the boiler waters came after that, yes. Are those still getting produced? I get a, I've had a check for 20 years. Well, there you go. I get a little check every single year, at the end of the year, from the publisher, and it shows me all of the sales and so there's the boiler books and the cooling water books, and then there's the little handbooks that go with it. And then there's another book I wrote actually, but it got published in Thailand. And that was because I was working in Southeast Asia for many, many years. And, uh, and that was good. That was me lecturing. And I tell you what, after a while, you get fed up with my Brit accent, you know? And, um, but the poor souls in Southeast Asia, they have to suffer me for eight hours a day, so that's four two-hour lectures um, every day. They then have to suffer me for five days, so 20 lectures each of two hours I give, and we probably have, I don't know, 80, 90 students with 14 or 15 languages, and, and obviously I am useless at Cambodian and Vietnamese and Thai and Malay and Indonesian and stuff like that, but 
is wonderful. The people will come and they all have the same problems that we see in the exchange forum. They have the same problems that we discuss every single day. It's not as if what we have in, in America is any, any different. The problems that we have, the ways that we have to solve it, the need to, to, know, to, to create cash or to conserve, it's the same all over the world. But unfortunately, they don't have an AWT, which is why I'm really, really pleased to see that every single year, every edition of the handbook that comes out, there are more and more Australian and Southeast Asian and South American uh, companies. And personally, it's good because I get jobs. We saw you in the AWT. We thought we'd phone you. you know, can you come to Australia and fix this for us? Well, sure. If there's some money in it, we'll, we'll do that. If there isn't, well, maybe you'll still come anyway. There you go. As seen at the AWT. As seen at the AWT. Exactly, yeah. Well, Colin, I want to uh, divert your attention over to my bookcase. If you see on the second shelf up, right in the middle, there are your books right there. Oh, wow. Did you pay for them? I actually paid for them when they first came out with the <laughs> AWT, and I got you to sign them. Right. And then when I left that company, they kept those books. So those are unsigned copies, oh. but I had one of your original versions that you had out, and they were signed. And wow. I think you told me something in the signature about sure. having bookworm-itis. Sure. Something. Well, I can sign them again. It's a dollar. There you go. There you go. I'll, I'll see what I have All in right. my wallet. So with AWT, there might be some listeners out there that are not familiar. I don't think you can be a listener of the show and not be familiar with AWT. But you had said that you have to learn every day when you're a water treater. Would you say that being a member of an organization like that makes that task easier? Yes, it does, because you don't always have to do everything on your own. And just look at the size of the USA. It's not one country. I don't know how many it is, it's probably not 50, but it's at least six or seven or eight different countries in terms of the, the geography and the people and, and, and uh, the kinds of industry that we have. And every one of those presents different kinds of, of problems. We're here in the Southeast. They've got, they've got boilers and coolers up in the Southwest, but it's a totally different um, scope uh, of, of work that has to be done to solve them. Texas is very different. The Northeast up in Philadelphia uh, and, and New York is very different. And just by meeting these people, we learn about the problems they have and how they go about solving them. Uh, and, and a good thing I think about the water industry is it doesn't matter what the problem is that the customer has. There's at least four, five or six different ways to solve it. So if you can understand the different ways, and maybe you might pick those up from speaking to other people at AWT training or convention, you add that to your own arsenal, you become stronger. There isn't just way to solve anything. Do you want to solve it with the maximum equipment, with the m maximum chemistry, with the minimum hands-on, with the maximum amount of a Rolls-Royce solution rather than a Chevrolet solution? There's lots of different ways, and you can pick all that up by talking to other people and learning from them. And, and most people at the AWT, quite frankly, are just like me. We love to talk. So if you ask the right questions, you're gonna get all sorts of free information from those people. Well, let's talk a little bit about that because AWT recently replaced the listserv where you could send an email in and it blasted out to everybody who signed up for it with the exchange forum. You and I had a dialogue before we started recording about the exchange forum. Do you mind telling the Scaling Up Nation what that is and why it's a benefit? 
The Exchange Forum is essentially a marketplace where people can go for information. Nobody has it all. Even an old guy like me doesn't have it all. Although I've probably got more than most simply because of the number of years I've been in it. But all the time, people are coming up against problems that need solving. They go and see a new prospect or they have an existing customer that develops a different kind of a problem. And the water treater, whoever is on site, whether it's the boss of the overall business, whether it's the technologist, whether it's the technician, they're seen to be the person that is going to solve the problem. They're the water doctor. And we don't all have all the answers there and then. So if we don't, ask somebody. So we can write on the exchange problem what our problem is, hopefully give some basic information about the size and the scale of the problem. We're not going to give who the customer is, but where it's located and some fundamentals and maybe a little bit of water analysis, and then say, this is my problem. This is some base information. Can anybody out there help me solve it or give me some ideas, some direction? And, and everybody is willing to help. Everybody is willing to pitch in and give an opinion, give some ideas, and, and very often they're absolutely on the mark. Now, if I was to criticize it, I would say that some of the people that write in don't give sufficient base information. Can you solve the problem for me? Well, there's five different solutions. Which one would you like? And, and, and I can't always give you all the solutions. In fact, I don't want to give all the solutions, but I'm very happy to give a direction to the people that write in and say, have you tried this? Have you tried that? Go down this route and then let those people explore those potential solutions. Because if you give them all the answers, there's nothing else for them. It's better that you give them a direction and then let them find out for themselves and then and implement that. And that process works very well. And so I love just going on the exchange forum and just looking. I don't always respond and I think, no, you should know that. You know, you're a CWT, you should know that. But if, the, if they don't, well, sometimes I'll give them a help. Um, sometimes I'll even talk to them privately and say, look, this is my advice. This is where to go. And it's good. But for me, quite honestly, it was a, an, another eye-opener. The AWT is absolutely full of, ex, of, of exciting things, and I think I know a bit, but I don't know them all. So just coming on the exchange forum and having a look and seeing what questions people ask and what the solutions are and directions they go, it all adds to the overall AWT water treatment experience, and that's what I'm here for. I'm not really here for the money. I'm here for the experience and the good time that I get because I can provide some help or help others in, in problem solving. You mentioned the certified water technologist designation. Has that been recognized when you work overseas? If I explain what it is, and, and I think that when I do this, the first thing I say is, hey guys, you need to actually go and have a look at the Association of Water Technologies web pages. See for yourself what it's about. If you become a member, for me, one of the real benefits of being the member is that you actually get access to the library of 25 or 26 years worth of, of analysts and all of the technical papers that's in there. But you can't get access to that until you pay your money. Now, the AWT has become so good, the training has become so good, they've been able to put together an examination, and it's a pretty tough examination, and it's called the Certified Water Technologist. Now, what I can tell you is, it is a legally defensible qualification, 
And that says everything to me in terms of the quality of the CWT exam. If I can stand before a judge and say, you know, I am a CWT and that meant that I had to have you know, a real extensive knowledge of the business. I had to serve a minimum amount of time. I had to demonstrate it. I had to give verification and validation that was checked up on before I was awarded a CWT. It will tell you it's a valuable asset. And I'm still not sure that customers always understand what it's about, but the fact that it's legally defensible and it's from an organization where the web pages are really pretty good, um, and the analyst and the, the articles are superb. It's great. Well, Colin, you've corrected me several times on my pronunciation of certain words. So laboratory. Hoping... You say laboratory. That's exactly where yes. I was going. It's with really that. laboratory, of course, you know. And and the fact that you take the eye out of aluminium. Well, I can't stand that. But and I'm trying to think of some other words. Yeah, uh, maybe is... schedule. Well, scheduled, yeah, no, no, but it's fine. No, but the the thing about American English is that you want to kind of make the words as concise as possible, as if you actually don't want to write them on the paper. Well, we're in a hurry, we have to do I know, yeah, you're in a hurry, I know, I know. No, it's fine, it's fine. Well, Colin, I do a segment on this show called The Boiling Point. I haven't done it in a while, mm -hmm. but things that I see other water treaters do that they just shouldn't be doing, they're either not learning from their mistakes and they're continuing to repeat those, or they're giving the rest of us a bad name. Mm -hmm. So you have an open mic, what do you see other water treaters do that you just wish they would stop doing? Okay. I get involved in lawsuits. I become an expert witness in lawsuits. And in fact, I've got one in a couple of days. Is it a couple of days? No, it's next week. I've got to, I've got to, uh, to go and be an expert witness at, a, at a, something that's more than $40 million lawsuit. And if you've, if you've ever been involved in anything like this where the law profession gets involved, the first thing is anything goes wrong, it's the water treater's fault. And there's been some really excellent articles about this. Uh, Bob Cunningham has written one. And there is a law firm that's joined AWT and they've been producing a couple of really good documents. And one of the things they say is document everything you do. And I would say that when I get involved in lawsuits and the lawyer hands me boxes and boxes of documents, of original contracts, of service reports, of literature that's, that's, that's been invoked, the thing that I see more than anything is the water treatment guy on the job does not put enough information down to protect himself. If you see something wrong, make a note of it. Don't just advise the operator, put it down, send it as an email so it's documented because when something goes wrong, they're all gonna look at the easiest way to get money, which is often the water treater. Why? Because nobody understands what water treatment is about except the water treatment company. And so if you actually document stuff, if you have regular review meetings and you bring all of things up and that gets documented in some, some minutes, if ever there is a big problem and a lawsuit and I've got to look at all of these documents, I've got something that can demonstrate that the water treatment company is not at fault. Something that I see on service reports that I absolutely hate is everything looks good. No, that you cannot do that. And quite frankly, if everything looks good, 
Your job is to explore a bit wider and maybe look at something that's not necessarily directly within your own province. If you can find other things and help to find ways to solve those, then the chances are that you're going to keep the job longer, make it more profitable. But when you keep writing a service report that says everything is okay, the client begins to think, why do I need you? Why am I spending money if everything is okay? So make sure everything is not okay. Make sure that you've explored other areas, other venues, other parts of the business, and you become a valuable resource to your client. Well, Nation, Colin is such a great guest and he's got so much to share. We are not going to be able to do it all in just one episode. So please join me back next week for the conclusion of my interview with Colin Frayne. Talk to you next week, folks. 